The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Sacred City. 
And it is my joy to introduce Rob Spikestra to you this morning. Rob is going to be preaching. Um, if, if you're new to Sacred City, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We are in Exodus 33 this morning. And it's my joy to have uh, Rob fill the, fill the pulpit for me this morning. And I'm personally excited and thankful that he's doing so. Um, if you don't know Rob, uh, Rob Spikestra has just reached his one-year anniversary as the headmaster at Morningstar Academy. We have many students that go there. I know my children go there. He came to the Quad Cities from Gardner, Montana, where he served as the resident minister at Yellowstone National Park. Now, that just sounds like a cool gig. <laughs> Previous to his time in Montana, he was the development director at Veritas Academy in Loyola, Pennsylvania, where he served as an elder at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Rob is married to Tamara, and they have three adult sons and one girl, Emily, who attends Morningstar as a seventh grader. Um, three or four years ago, we appointed our first elder at Sacred City, and he, that was the old headmaster of Morningstar Academy, and the Lord moved him out, and we were upset about that, but God is gracious, and he brought Rob in to fill his place, <laughs> and Rob found his uh, place here at Sacred City, and we're thankful for that. He's been a member. He just, in the last membership process, went through membership. His wife, Tamara, and their family, and uh, he's a part, been a part of a missional community for about a year now. And so it's just my pleasure and my joy because many times, now he's a rookie preacher to Sacred City, but he's not a rookie preacher, okay? So if you're buckling up for, oh, no, don't, all right? Just get ready, okay? It's going to be good this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to welcome up. I'm going to let him pray so he can get his bearings up here this morning. He's got to use my pulpit, which is probably about a foot too short, but that's okay. It's just That's just reality. Uh, and so, Rob, thank you for bringing the word this morning. We're excited to hear it. Thanks very much. Appreciate it very much. Well, um, as you heard there, we have three boys and a daughter. My oldest, Zachariah, is married to a beautiful young lady named Tia, and uh, he works as a mechanical engineer outside of uh, Detroit. My second son is uh, Caleb, and uh, he is a graphic designer in Chattanooga. And he is two classes away from graduating uh, from college. And my third son, Seth, is here, and he's going into his senior year at Wheaton College with a health science degree. And so, yes, if you do the math correctly, we at one time had three sons in college at the same time. And God provided. It was good. So, uh, and also, as you've heard, we have a daughter, Emily, whom uh, her brothers uh, prayed into our life. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Well, let me, uh, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for, um, we thank you for your word. Uh, we don't take it lightly that you have given us uh, this uh, written word to us. We don't take it lightly, Father, that you gave us your Holy Spirit and whom can help us to uh, really illuminate that word in our lives. And so, Father, we come again to wholly and fully dependent upon you that you would be ministering to each of our hearts and lives. So please do that. We invite you to minister to us through this great uh, chapter that you have given to us from so long ago. So, Father, help us. Help me. I pray that as Justin prays week by week, I agree. 
I pray that you would take away any foolishness of, my, of myself, anything that is of me and not of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that you would only magnify your spirit and only magnify our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we would just pray, do your work uh, within, our, within our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Emily came into our life through, uh, through adoption, and she was born in, in China. Uh, the last part of a Chinese uh, adoption is that you actually have to go over there into uh, China. And so we were in uh, Hangzhou, Hangzhou, a uh, small city from Chinese standards, only 22 million people. We, we were essentially had time in which we had to just simply kill because of the paperwork that needed to be processed. And so we had gone over uh, with several uh, families. And so we thought, well, let's go to this market. We'd heard about this outdoor market that, uh, that we needed to see. And so we said, let's go to that market. And so uh, without knowing the language, not able to speak it nor able to read it, we got ourselves a cab, several cabs, and uh, we got in with just the name uh, of this market, you know, as best we could possibly pronounce it. And uh, we went on to our went on our trip. So our, our cab drivers they they dropped us off at this uh, location. Uh, we paid we paid the, the cab drivers. We got out. We stepped out. We looked and we thought, well, this isn't it. And so we turned around and our cabs were gone. And, and so here we are. We're in this place of which we we really have no bearings, uh, and we must have looked like um, lost puppies. Because not too long after this, there was a Chinese family that came up to us and, and in broken English attempted to ascertain where we needed to be. And so with a lot of hand gestures and repeated attempts of saying the market's name, believing that if we just said it louder, you know, uh, they would understand, I'm sure, our butchered pronunciation. Um, there was that universal aha moment in their eyes as we realized they knew what we were talking about. And so they began to point in a particular direction. But then in a remarkable show of hospitality to strangers, they not only pointed, but gestured for us to follow them. Which after 30 minutes of walking and turning from side to side, avenues down various avenues. We realized there was no way that we were going to find our way to this market apart from their presence, apart from them coming in and showing us exactly where we, where we needed to go, to the very destination that we needed to uh, get to. Well, this is where we find Moses, and this is where we find God's people here in chapter 33. There is a clear destination that God is taking them, and that is the promised uh, land. But the journey will be filled with myriads of unknowns, unexpected twists and turns yet to be negotiated. People who not merely don't, they don't understand in terms of culture and language, but people who are actually going to be hostile to them. If there was a time when God's people felt a deep need for the presence of God, it is now. But Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bibles, I would appreciate you turning there for just uh, for a little bit here. Exodus chapter 32. And of course, we're going to be in chapter 33, but to really understand 
understand 33. We need to begin reminded of where we were last week in, in this uh, book, Exodus. Exodus 32. So where they are at uh, in this saga is uh, geographically, they're at Mount Sinai, but probably more significant than their geographical setting is their spiritual setting. Within days of their agreement of the Ten Commandments, their slave instincts surface. So we see there in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. God's plan is not unfolding at the time frame that they thought it should It wasn't moving at the speed that they expected. They began to get those old feelings of abandonment that comes from being sinned against and being a sinner. And so you can imagine their anxiousness. You can imagine the restlessness. You can kind of feel that sense of uh, frustration. And so you remember last week? Because we are sinners, we respond sinfully to suffering. And so the second part of verse 1, chapter 32, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and to him and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So, so Aaron said, then we'll take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are our gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They have just broken the first three commandments. By the way, just in case you think we've come a long way from fashioning metal images of our gods, all you need to do is take a trip to Manhattan, uh, either really or, virtu- or virtually. At, at the cross streets of Broadway and, and Whitehall, central point of the financial district, you will find an enormous charging bronze bull in front of Wall Street which the sculptor said it represents, it's an image of our current day, well, he didn't say this, I'll say it, the current day gods of prosperity, materialism, and wealth. We haven't come any further than they did in that day. And so God responds righteously to to the people's bulls. He's ready to destroy them, to consume them. And so already we recognize, isn't this us? Isn't this who we we are? God does not work according to our time frame. He he doesn't move at the speed of which we think he should be moving within our lives or within other people's lives. We we know him. We we, we agree that we're going to follow him. But then uh, we begin to panic. And we begin to feel that sense of abandonment and wonder, is God really there? Why isn't he answering the prayer that I've been praying, a good, righteous, good prayer that I've been putting out for, for maybe a, a, a child or uh, maybe a, for me and a sin in my own life? And so rather than 
waiting on God, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. We fall back into our slave instincts of sin, just like God's people here, and we run back to slavery, slavery uh, to our sinful passions. So that Moses describes the people as people who had broken loose. You see that there in chapter 32, verse 25. As Justin pointed out uh, last week, it's a word to describe livestock which have gotten out of their enclosure. So that God's people have become like the image that they have created and came to trust in. And so they cast off all restraint. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, uh, that is, the loss of the revelation of God or the loss of respect or fear of God's word. Where there's this loss of the fear of God's word, Proverbs 29, 18 ends this way, the people cast off restraint and we become like stupid animals. Well, God could have consumed them. He could have consumed them on the spot if it wasn't for someone to intercede on their behalf. And so in their case, Moses, Moses appealing to God. Moses reminded God of his redemption of them, of his mission, and of his covenant. And we are going to see here in a moment that the people were truly repentant of their sinfulness. But now there is this heaviness, this heaviness of the memory of sin. Heaviness of the guilt of sin. Heaviness of the loss of fellowship with the God that they love. So it's in this light of this heaviness that God is going to teach them in chapter 33, a remarkable lesson of who he is and the very essence of his goodness, a goodness that is still true today for us this morning. So this is really what I want you to taste this morning. The essence of God, the essence of God provides the assurance of his presence in the memory of sin. The presence of, uh, the essence of God, it's that which provides the assurance of his presence when we are weighted down by the memory of sin. Perhaps this morning you are here and you're weighted down by the memory of sin, of a particular memory of a repented of sin from maybe a long time ago, or maybe it's as fresh as last night. Repented of, but weighing you down. Well, this passage has a great promise of great relief as you encounter the essence of God's goodness or or perhaps you have sin that you have yet to repent of because of the vileness and you don't think there's any hope. Fear of its exposure before God because you know the only thing you deserve is his wrath. Well, there's good news. There's good news for those who repent. Found here in the essence of his goodness. Well, let's get to that goodness by briefly walking through how God is going to teach Israel a remarkable lesson about who he is. The first thing we find here, and this is not surprising, sin spoils our assurance of God's presence. Look there now, verse 1, chapter 33. 
Sin spoils our assurance of God's presence. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that doesn't seem so bad. God is, is going to keep his promise. It's the very covenant that God has reminded, or that Moses has reminded of God there in chapter 32, uh, uh, that he is going to go with them, that, the, that it stays that destroying hand of God. But rather than destroying his people in right judgment for their sin, he's going to destroy all those who go in advance of them so that they can enjoy the fruit of a land that previously wasn't theirs. He, he's going to give them their equivalent of the American dream. You have to really appreciate uh, what they're hearing here. See, imagine you're, you're living your entire life as a slave without the ability to really call anything your own. To have no hope to pass anything on to your children, but slavery. But then to be told, you are going to go up to the land that you, will have, that you will call your own and you will be successful in that land and you will have security, comfort, and legacy. Now talk about the American dream right there for us. It's in spades. <laughs> Set for life. Going to have it all. This is what he's promising. But then look what he says. He says, I will not go up among you. Why is that? Continues on, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He couldn't go among them because he knew the reality of the condition of their Heart. Their problem was that they were stiff-necked, that is, prideful, uh, know-it-alls, stubborn sinners, and they have already proved it. In the face of all of God's goodness, in the face of his power on their behalf, what have they done? They've rejected him. They've disobeyed his word. They thought they knew better than God. See, there are really two problems here. The first is in, that we've already addressed and are painfully aware of in our own lives, and that is that we are stiff-necked people. The second is really not a problem as much as it is a reality of a condition or a reality of a situation, and that is that God is holy and is extremely dangerous. The very essence of his character, which we are going to discover in a moment, is both life-giving and life-threatening, like the sun. The sun in our solar system is holy in that it is the only one. It's a unique body within the system of planets and moons and asteroids and dust. It's, ama it's an amazing, blazing body that gives life, but don't get too close unprotected for it will consume you. It's life-giving, but it's also life-threatening. Well, God is holy, 
unique, the only one, both life-giving and life-threatening, unprotected. So he knew the condition of his people and that to be among the prideful know-it-alls, stubborn sinners was to consume them. So we then find in verse 4 how they interpret what he's just said. They said, this is disastrous. This is disastrous. The reason I'm preaching this passage, this particular chapter, was actually several months ago, my mother-in-law, she passed away from Alzheimer's disease. And I knew that uh, at the time I was reading through the book of Exodus and and, uh, primarily because we're in Exodus, but also just kind of my daily reading. And I happened to come to this chapter and I was saying, what am I going to preach at my mother-in-law's, my mother-in-law's funeral? And I knew that within her crowd, those audience, they had, they had been around quite a few influential people there in Nebraska. So I knew it was going to be some lawyers and um, perhaps some politicians, uh, some educators. I, I knew that within that crowd, there are folks who had really made a way for themselves, that they were people who, who were successful in our eyes and in, in, in the world's eyes and had it all, really in one sense had that American dream. I wondered, what did they need to hear? Well, they needed to hear the message that my mother-in-law communicated to us as a family who had Alzheimer's. See, she came to a point where she began to lose it all. She lost everything, even to the point of the capacity to use her mind. But what we found among her things where we found one, a Bible, and we opened that Bible up, and guess what, that Bible, every single line was underlined, every single verse. And you would go into her room, and we did notice this because this is out there for us to see. She had taken an agreement, uh, an agreement that, that she had also underlined, and it was, it was actually pasted uh, to the side of the, of the dresser right next to her so that when she laid it down and put her head down, she could see that agreement. And you know what that agreement was? That agreement was the Ten Commandments. She knew this, even as she was kind of losing the capacity of her mind, she knew that within God's word, within this agreement called the Ten Commandments, that there there was hope so that she could lose everything, all of her possessions, even her own health, even her mind, she knew there was still hope. And so I said to those folks, I said, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at well, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at stiff-necked people, stubborn. And you know, you're looking at a stiff-necked, stubborn person as well, foolish, thinking that I know better than God. Our hope is found. It's found in here and what God will do for us. And so they said, this is disastrous. And I said to those people, and I say to us that if you have the American dream, if you have everything that God has promised them, but but you don't have God's presence, then that's disastrous. 
So they recognize this, and so look what they do there. The people heard this disaster's word, verse 4, and they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, the Lord is really pressing into God's people repentance. Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I would go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, where in the world did they get all these ornaments? Where did they world did they get all this gold? Well, remember where they got it? They got it when God redeemed them out of the nation of Israel. As they were coming out. The people of Egypt are so sick of the Israelites to say, take our gold, get out of here. They used the very good gifts that God had given them, and they took those ornaments, they took that gold, and what did they do with it? They melted down, they made it into a, an idol. And what they didn't melt down, they still wore. And again, isn't that us? We take the good gifts that God has given to us, and being stiff-necked and rebellious, we begin worshiping those things rather than God himself. So there's a sense of disaster. This is terrible. And so God says, take those things that make other people think all is well. And he says, take that off. And repent. Repent. What is it to repent? Well, it is to agree with God, the lawgiver. It's to acknowledge the line drawn in the sand where God says, this is sin. And so there is an agreement. It takes more than simply an acknowledgement with one's head of that line. There is a conviction to step over that line onto God's side. And so there is the decision of one's will where you decide to step over into God's side of the line, the desire of the will. And that evidence of that change desire of the will translates into an action, a turning away from one's sin. And that's what these people did. Well, God had pressed them, so they stripped themselves of their ornaments, and they've repented. And yet, while their sins have been covered, the consequences, the down and dirty reality of sin is that the assurance of God's presence is lost. Sin spoils the assurance of his presence. Well, God doesn't want to leave his people there. He doesn't want to leave us here, but... Remember, in this passage, God wants us to do this, to taste the fact that the very essence of who God is provides the assurance of his presence when we are weighted down by sin. So how is he going to get us there? How is he going to get them there? Well, here's the second point. What we need, what we need is we need a friend of God who will intercede on our behalf. Now, it's interesting as you go through here, verses 7 through 11 almost seem a little bit out of place. The prose shifts abruptly from this first person. You're right there in the action kind of thing, and it moves into a third-person description. And it is masterful writing because it's abrupt for a reason, and that is to catch our attention of what is going on here. And so look at verses 7 through 11. So now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, there's several things I want you to know here. Number one, first, the tent of meeting is not the capital T tent of meeting. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the tabernacle. It is, it is uh, back in chapter 26, we had the description of the tabernacle, if you remember, the tent of meeting. And yet we, we see in chapters 35 through 40, it is clear that the raw materials have yet to be collected for the capital T tent of meeting. So this is a smaller fill-the-gap special tent where only Moses meets with God. Secondly, where is it located? Well, look there in verse 7. The twice given the emphasis outside the camp, outside the camp. Now, when we get to the next two books, Leviticus and Numbers, we discover something about the placement of that capital T tent, the tabernacle. It's in the center of the camp. And all the uncleanness goes outside of the camp. But at this point, it seems that all of Israel is unclean. So the tent is not only outside the camp, but look there again in verse 7, far off from the camp. It is a physical reminder that while God wants to meet with his people, he can't, he can't meet and have fellowship with them in their uncleanness. And so there's a sense of distance in this passage. Kind of how we feel when we're have sinned. But then there's this wonderful contrast in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Wow. Two books later in Numbers, we read these words, God speaking about Moses being more than a prophet. God said in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, he said, Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of God. And so here we have the phrase face to face, and in our passage, it doesn't mean that Moses could see God, for just a few verses later in verse 20, we're going to discover that we, he said, you cannot see my face. Rather, it's a figure of speech intended to show that Moses enjoyed direct communication. Moses had an immediate access to God. It was a level of intimacy that really there had not been experienced since the Garden of Eden between an individual and God himself. And it meant that there was still some hope. See, what we need is a friend of God who will intercede on our behalf. And so the last point I want to leave you with today is this. Jesus Christ is that friend who speaks on our behalf. Particularly when we are weighted down by the memory of sin. See, remember, it's the very essence of God which provides us the assurance of his presence, particularly when we're weighted down by the memory of sin. 
Well, there's a lot going on here in 12 through 23. Matter of fact, this passage could be a a message in itself. But I do want to focus on two requests for us here. The first is this. Moses seeks for God's presence to go not only with him, but with his people. He, He requests, he makes the request to God, don't just go with me, but go with your people. See, in verses 12 through 16, we are taken now into the tent of meeting to overhear this interaction between uh, Moses and God. So Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, see, you say to me, bring up this people. Now talk about familiarity that Moses has with him. We could actually translate it this way. Now see here, God. Now see here, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So now Moses is appealing to two realities of his relationship to Yahweh. The first one is this, God knows Moses intimately. He says, I know you by name. Moses was not just a face in the crowd. He's an individual to God. And this this idea here is it's a special knowledge filled with love and favor. It's a relationship where one is embraced by God in an acceptance and a friendship. God knew him in a loving, electing, saving way. And God knows all his children in an electing, saving, loving way. It's that blessedness of being God's child, a child of God, where we find ourselves hearing these words from Paul or God speaking through Paul in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Why, Paul? Why? How has he blessed us? Why has he blessed us? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. But what is truly significant is the second gracious reality. He says, you have also found favor in my sight. Now we know several things about Moses already. We know that he is highly commendable. He is meek. Numbers 12.3 says that, that, that now Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. In the New Testament, reflecting back, Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 3 says he was faithful. He was God's man for God's people at this time in history. Yet we also know that Moses was a murderer. And even before Moses, right after he's met with God, if you will, there in the burning bush, and God has given him his marching orders, before he even gets to Egypt, we read that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death, seemingly for his direct disobedience. So talk about a man who's weighted down by the memory of sin. Later, we're going to find him in unbelief, losing self-control and attempting to steal God's glory. And yet we know this about Moses. The good and the bad, God said, you found favor. 
And Moses uses this favorable reality to leverage his request. There in verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. In, in essence, he's saying, show me your ways so that I can continue to know that I have favor. He, he knows that God is calling him to a hard work, a work of which he's leading his stiff-necked people on into the future, an unknown future. And so he wants to know, yeah, I know I've got favor, but continue to show me your ways so I know I will continue to have favor because I'm going to need it. And so then he hints into verse 13. Consider too this nation, it's your people. And he's going to give that request coming in verse 15. We have a rhythm at our house. We've had it when we first started having children and we continued it. And we don't have our boys at home anymore. But one of the rhythms was that we would eat dinner together every night. And part of that is I would just assign to one of the boys to pray for the, for the meal for that night. And so this was when we were, uh, boy, this has been about uh, maybe 15, 16 years ago now. When we had this particular evening, I'll never forget it. Um, you'll see why in a moment. Uh, we're sitting around the table, and I don't even remember what son I said, but, you know, son, would you please pray for us? And so we all bow our head, and he did the typical pray that you'd expect there around the table. Dear God, thank you for this day. Dear God, you know, we really appreciate, and then he probably named some game or something that they played. And then he said, dear God, thank you for this food. And dear God, we would like to have a Chinese sister. Amen. What? We had some friends who were unable to uh, get pregnant, and so they had adopted a Chinese daughter, and they had come visit us, I don't know, maybe three months before this moment. And, and our boys just latched onto her and loved her and, and really enjoyed Jessica as her name. And, and um, so they left, and, you know, we didn't think anything of it. Yeah, but they did. And they began to petition God. Because we, we raised our eyes up from that moment of prayer. And we said, what? What did you just say? I said, oh, yeah. We've been praying since Jessica left about three months ago. We've been praying for a sister, a Chinese sister. <laughs> That's exactly what Moses was doing here. Oh, yeah, by the way, God, your people. <laughs> kind of attaching it on to the end here. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, I think it's brazen of what... Moses is doing at this point. But God doesn't show displeasure, but responds positively to the entreaty. So verse 14, he says, well, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But it's almost as if God is saying, I saved you so that you can come into my presence and make bold requests. God has saved you that you might come into his presence to make bold requests. And so Moses does. And he asks God, God's presence to go not only with him, but with his people, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, now notice the little switch here of the pronoun, you know, the, we've got a, a, a different person here. Uh, now he says, um, uh, 
If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, what distinguished the Israelites from the other nations was not their land. They didn't have any land. Not their wealth. Other nations had much more wealth than they did. Not their culture. They were slaves. Not their self-righteousness, for they had already proven that they cannot even obey the most basic of commandments. No, the only thing going for the Israelites was their relationship with God. God with them. See, isn't that the great divide still today? What sets you apart today is not your talents. It's not your wealth. It's not your race. It's not your family standing. And certainly not your obedience to God's commands. What sets you apart is God's favor on calling you his own. You are God's people. We are God's people. He is Emmanuel, God with us, living in us. And so the Lord answers Moses, verse 17. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now here's the second request. The first, God's presence. The second, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Why did he ask this? Well, I believe he asks this because this reality, God with us, his presence, particularly with the weight of the memory of the vileness of sin of chapter 32. This reality of his presence is so wonderful, it is hard for the human soul to grasp it. It's almost as if Moses is asking, who are you? Who are you that you would continue to go with us? Stiff-necked, stubborn people. And so look how God graciously responds. First, verse 19, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. What is he saying here? Well, we say it often like this with food or drink that we savor. So what we'll do is we'll say, take a bite of this truffle and just let that goodness kind of flow over your taste buds. Or we might, uh, we might take a drink, or you, you drink coffee, and you, you drink beer, you, you drink wine, you smoke a cigar. <laughs> and there's a complexity to it, but uh, there is a deep goodness that sets it apart from anything else that you've ever drank or smoked. So when you do this, your eyes are engaged, your nose is engaged, your taste buds are engaged. It's in sense of enjoying deeply and richly, and it's what the psalmist says says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
God is asking Moses to do the same. Taste the very essence of who I am, and that essence is wrapped up in my name, Yahweh, the Lord. And that means I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The essence of God's goodness is wrapped up in his name. And what is that, what is that essence? It's the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Sovereign grace and mercy. See, the very essence of who God is Gracious and merciful provides us the assurance of his presence when we are weighed down by the memory of sin. So let me conclude with this. God saved the Israelites because he was pleased with their mediator. God promised his presence because he was pleased with their mediator. Do you see that in verse 17? Go back to verse 17. This is the very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God did this. God gave us chapter 33 so that we would understand the true basis of our salvation, the true basis of our assurance of his presence in the memory of our vileness. He was pleased with their mediator, and their mediator wasn't ultimately Moses. Moses was a servant of God pointing to a greater one so that even Moses could not, uh, could not absorb the consuming glory of God. He too needed to be covered. Look at verses 20 through 23. But he said, you cannot see me face to face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, there is only one mediator. Our salvation depends upon the pleasure that God takes into this one mediator. This mediator needs to be known by him, by his name. He needs to find favor in God's sight, and he needs to be able to meet God uncovered, absorbing his wrath. Which is why the father's words about his son is so meaningful at the beginning and the end of his public ministry. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so he, like Moses, met God outside the camp. See, what happened there is the, once we had the tabernacle and then eventually the temple that came into the presence of God's people, so that all sacrifices that were made, they were made there in, in, in the temple or in the tabernacle, and then, then all the uncleanness of, of the sacrifice, the, the, the parts that weren't used for the sacrifice and weren't necessary, went outside the camp. To, that, was, that was unclean. It was unclean to be outside the camp now. And that's exactly where Jesus went. He became unclean for us. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 
11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. So this is a clean place. This is a place where the blood is shed for God's people for the forgiveness of their sins by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. The bodies are burned outside the camp. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, there are times when, when you wonder, how could God ever be pleased with me? We're, we're weighed down by the memory of our own repented sin, and we still feel like failures. I can't even, I can't match my own expectations for my own life, let alone God's expectations for, for my life. I can't meet my own standards. And then we ask, how could God ever be pleased with me with his standards? Well, the answer is, God is pleased with his son, and therefore he is pleased with anyone who trusts in his son. Here's the good news. Take off the ornaments. Take off the ornaments. Those things that you put on to make everybody think all is well. All is not well. You know it. Claim it. Claim your sin. Admit it. Cross over to what God says is sin. Say, you're right, God. I am a sinner. Vile. I have no hope apart from you. And then claim him. Claim Christ. The great mediator. The one who covers us now. Covered Moses So that Moses could enjoy the essence of who God is and God wants you to enjoy the essence of who he is and that he is sovereignly merciful and gracious to all who will come to him. That's the good news. (laughs) I'll conclude with this last passage. Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that are to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And our hope is Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you. You take this story that is so long ago, the culture that we don't fully understand. And Father, you have given it to us this day to bring assurance to all who have repented of their sin. That you're a God who is merciful and gracious. That what makes us distinct is that you are with us. And the reason you're with us, Father, is because of your son. You're so pleased with him and what he did for us on the cross. We thank you, Father, that he consumed all of your wrath, and yet he rose again to give life to whoever will receive it. And so, Father, our prayer is help us. Give us repentance. Father, help us to take off our ornaments and help us to say, yes, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And thank you, Father, that we have hope. Our hope is in Christ himself. We bless you and praise you. Thank you that your presence never leaves us in Christ. Yes, Father, we have walked away from you this past week. We have, we, we have felt distant from you. And yet we thank you, Father, that you never left us. 
So, Father, as we take this Lord's Supper, now we are just recommitting our our part of the covenant with you, just like my mother-in-law did every single day. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.